All right, thanks everybody for coming. Uh, Deborah and I are going to have a conversation, roughly 20 minutes or so, and then we certainly plan to allow you plenty of audience participation to be able to ask Deborah any questions that you like at the end. Um, firstly, I'd like to welcome you to Sydney, your Thank first you. trip, I think. It is. Thanks for bringing the English weather. <laughs> is that my first cliche? <laughs> Um, we're delighted to have Deborah with us. And just to start off with, many of you may know, but I thought I'd just read a, a very brief, very brief bio of Deborah. And then Deborah's going to do a short reading for us to, to start off, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Deborah Levy was born in 1959 in South Africa, uh, and her family emigrated to the UK in 1968. Deborah is a British playwright, and I noticed that Wikipedia lists 18 plays. <laughs> can't believe everything you read on the net. Well, that's what it said. A theatre director, that's true. A novelist, that's true. And a poet, yes. that's true. Her plays have been staged by the Royal Shakespeare Company, and she's the author of highly praised novels. I won't list them all, but they include Beautiful Mutants, Swallowing Geography, and Billy and Girl. Her most recent novel, Swimming Home, published by And Other Stories, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2012. Swimming Home was also shortlisted for the UK Author of the Year Prize and some others. Following her Booker Prize shortlisting, Deborah published a short story collection, uh, Black Vodka, which looks like this, uh, in 2013. That's this year. The title story was shortlisted for the BBC International Short Story Award 2012. And Deborah's also written across a number of other art forms, including radio plays and collaborations with visual artists. Yes. So mostly true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so now um, I'm going to ask Deborah to read uh, from Swimming Home. Okay, thank, thank you, Deborah. Thank you, and, th and thank you for coming out and. Um, it's rainy night. Uh, this is what it's like in Britain, and it's our summer. <laughs> I usually stand up when I read, but I uh, let's just try. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. This is the American edition of Swimming Home, and I'm just going to read the first two pages because, in a way, that uh, I, I lay out my stall as a writer uh, for this book in those pages. For those of you who haven't read it, um, Kitty Finch is a young, fragile woman who has written a poem called Swimming Home. And she stalked a famous British male poet um, to the south of France. It's set in 1994 and she's gate-crashed his holiday with his family. He's there with his wife and his daughter and two family friends, and she asks him to read it. But the first two pages are like a sneak peek into the future. They sort of happen before the novel begins. And there's one other thing to say, which is that the poet is, has a number of names. He's called Joe Jacobs and also Josef Novogrodsky. So he slides between these two identities. I'm very interested in names. Um, in The Great Gatsby, Jay Gatz is also Mr. Gatsby. Um, so that's all you need to know for, for the time being. A mountain road Midnight. When Kitty Finch took her hand off the steering wheel and told Joe she loved him, he no longer knew if she was threatening him or having a conversation. Her silk dress was falling off her shoulders as she bent over the steering wheel. A rabbit ran across the road and the car swerved. Joe heard himself say, Why don't you pack a rucksack? and see the poppy fields in Pakistan like you said you wanted to. Yes, she said. He could smell petrol. 
Her hands swooped over the steering wheel like the seagulls they'd counted from their room in the hotel two hours ago. She asked him to open his window so she could hear the insects calling out to each other in the forest. He wound down the window and asked her gently to keep her eyes on the road. Yes, she said, her eyes now back on the road. And then she told him the nights were always soft in the French Riviera. The days were hard and smelt of money. He leaned his head out of the window and felt the cold mountain air sting his lips. Early humans had once lived in this forest that was now a road. They knew the past lived in rocks and trees, and they knew desire made them awkward, mad, mysterious, messed up. To have been so intimate with Kitty Finch had been a pleasure, a pain, a shock, an experiment, but most of all it had been a mistake. He asked her again to please, please, please drive him safely home to his wife and daughter. Yes, she said, life is only worth living because we hope it'll get better and we'll all get home safely. What I um, particularly liked about it, I'm, I'm not from a literary background, I'm a documentary filmmaker mostly. What I liked about that is, that in a sense, it was a kind of a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's how I related to it. It, it, it. And only by uh, reading the whole of the book do you realise the extent to which you've had, as you referred to, that, that glimpse into, into parts of the story. Yeah. What I also um, relate to in a filmmaking sense is that um, you choose certain moments to show the, show the audience something or to tell the audience something. And then later on in filmmaking terms, you might go back to that same scene and show them a little bit more to give the scene a different kind of meaning. I wonder if you could just read this one paragraph, which is a little, little further into the book, which is an echo, which is just that last paragraph there on page 26. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the car journey returns throughout the book and we learn a little bit more about what happens in that car and, and Rod very cleverly has picked up on this. And uh, So later into the novel, we're back uh, on that car journey. Yes, Kitty Finch said, her eyes now back on the road. I know what you're thinking. Life is only worth living. Can you hear me? Yep. Life is only worth living because we hope it'll get better and we'll all get home safely. But you tried and you did not get home safely. You did not get home at all. That is why I am here, Josef. I have come to France to save you from your thoughts. Well, I like that because it's suddenly you go back to that scene and then you're given a little bit of extra dialogue, a little yeah. bit of information. Suddenly you think, oh, this is not, this is not how it appeared. There's something deeper is happening. And, and it's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful technique. But I chose that because it's also, it's, there's a lot in the book about the theme of not returning home yes. or trying to return home. And so I wanted to start with a little bit of your background about where home was first <laughs> for you. Um, you grew up in South Africa. Uh, you were born in South Africa. I was also born in South Africa. We discovered something um, slightly overlapping and is that um, I came with my family to Sydney in 1965 and you left South Africa in 1968 but went to the UK. So yes. can I just ask you about that concept of the home that you once had and the fact that it's, it's there, you were nine years old when you left, mm -hmm. but what that sense of having been born somewhere else um, has brought to your, your work as a writer or perhaps uh, or any way that you'd like to take that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's brought everything that's perplexing about my work starts starts there in my life for me not actually I hope too much in the work but um, 
I was born in South Africa, but I was born in apartheid South Africa. And um, my father was a member of the African National Congress, um, and he was a political prisoner from, uh, for four years. So when I was five, uh, my dad disappeared, and he came back when I was nine. So, um, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, all the... Um, all those people, that generation, were sort of part of my family. Uh, so it wasn't just leaving a country. It was leaving a country with, um, you know, fairly traumatized. Um, and so when we left South Africa when I was nine, in a way, as I got into my teens... I wanted to make a completely new narrative. I wanted to make my own story mm-hmm. um, and stories. And it took me a very long time to actually write about South Africa. And this is the book. I, I go there in this book. Mm. Um, the, the writer J.G. Ballard said this incredible thing that I had in my mind when I was uh, writing the book. Uh, he, uh, his parents uh, were interned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. He grew up in Shanghai. He never wrote about it until he wrote Empire of the Sun, mm-hmm. which won the booker. Mm-hmm. And he was asked why, and he said it took 20 years to forget and <laughs> 20 years to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that you spent the early part of your life, your teenage, what, maybe 20s, learning to forget, and it came back, it's, it's taken until now yes. for you to really delve into that past? I think that's more or less, mm. more or less right, mm. yeah. I returned recently, we, we were talking about this uh, earlier, I was invited with Swimming Home to read in a bookshop in Cape Town and to talk about it um, at the University of Stellenbosch. And that was an amazing thing. Uh, I said to the students and to the audience, well, I left with a funny South African accent when I arrived in Britain. My brother and I used to watch all the British um, TV sitcoms and we'd copy the English accent. (laughs) And there are many English accents. So we had the sort of medley of of strange uh, British accents. And I said, here I am at 54 with my funny British accent now. And uh, they could really relate to that, you know. Um, So there was a kind of in-translation, if you like, from Mm. 9 to 54. Mm. And we could talk about the ways, um, the sort of ways we make ourselves up. Um, mm. If we leave one country mm. and, and make a life in another country, mm. um, it's yeah. a, in, in a way, it's a very uh, it's a very rich background to have. I always felt that myself because there is a sense of this isn't the only way to live, you know, because you've come from somewhere else. Yeah. That there's there are other ways to live, and in that case, there was a comparison with having come from a place of, of deep oppression and racism. So there was always this quite a dramatic contrast and um, I'll be very interested to read in your new book the new book <laughs> um, something else I just wanted to um, explore you mentioned uh, the character Joe Jacobs yes. in Swimming Home and how he had a, another name of Josef Nov- Novogrodsky. Novrotsky my Polish is getting better because the film I'm actually producing now is partly set in Poland oh, so I've been listening okay. to it Quite a lot of Polish and learning to drink vodka, as, as, <laughs> as you have to do when you're dealing with things Polish. But uh, Deborah Levy, you, um, it's a Jewish name. The, the character has reference to having been a, ho- a child Holocaust survivor yes. within the book. Now, it's not dealt with... It's another thing that interest, interested me very much about your writing in this particular book. You don't choose to elaborate greatly, but there are... Clearly, he is from somewhere else. We know have, we have just enough information. 
and he's a Polish Holocaust survivor who left as a child and came to Britain. I'm just wondering if you uh, could tell us a little bit about that part of your background and whether it, w whether it is part of your background and it's in the novel because of that or whether you relate to that side of your, your history, yeah. uh, Europe Eastern European background. Yeah. I do relate to my Eastern European background, mostly through my paternal grandmother, who was from Lithuania, not from Poland. And um, Me too. Ah, okay. <laughs> And uh, she and I look very alike, you know, it's, it's, it's quite odd looking at photographs of her. Um, I look much more like Leah than I look like my mum and dad. Mm. And um, she taught me one line of Yiddish when I was about seven that I've never forgotten. Achaleria zos tu chapen, which means, Can you may you catch the cholera? <laughs> and um, useful curse. <clears throat> she used to she used to read all my stories, and she had a funny Yiddish accent. You know, if we're talking about all our accents. Um, in her last years, I used to go and visit her in her uh, Jewish care home, and she would say, "Bring my granddaughter a herring." And I really didn't like herrings then. They were sour and silver. And, um, uh, and I love herrings now, but she used to chop it in half and she'd give me the bigger half. And just out of love, you know, <laughs> I would eat the herring. And, and I would read her my stories and she would tell me her stories. Mm. But... Josef and Poland, um, I was interested in the, in, in my research, I was interested in that journey through the forest that the Polish Jewish children made and, and many uh, wound up in uh, Whitechapel in the east end of London. What I had my eye on there for swimming home was Josef's parents saying to the five-year-old boy, you must never come home. Mm. Home is not a safe place to be. You must never, you can never come home. Now, we don't usually say that out of love. Mm. When we say that to people, we're angry. Mm. And he has to live. I, I, I began to think about how he lived with that into, um, it, through all the stations in his life. Um, and um, I get the Holocaust is just a trace in my book. I wanted to explore how how the past comes back in the everyday and makes us sometimes misbehave. You know, mm -hmm. Joseph is no hero in my book, mm -hmm. as those of you who've read it um, might know. I make it as complicated for him as, as possible. Um, and I was also thinking of Hansel and Gretel. You know, they, um, they have to, they, there's a famine in the land and their parents, his father's just remarried, there's a wicked stepmother and she doesn't want to feed the children and she says to him, take the children out and abandon them in the woods. So home isn't a good place for Hansel and Gretel all the same, they lay out this trail of bread mm. to get home, which I just find so touching, mm. you know. Um, and they, birds eat the bread, so it's thwarted, and they go through this uh, a whole number of adventures, and they do get home. But if you read the original fairy tale, mm. it's a really tough, story. So that, that was uh, very much in my mind too. Mm. Thank you. No, that's, um, I was really interested in how it was there but, but lightly, lightly touched on but, but nevertheless very significant. Yeah. It was clearly a significant Absolutely. part of his background which he had never, he'd never gotten away from. And it's in his poetry as yes. well. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that. So that's um, a, bit of, a bit of your background there that I wanted to explore. Let's uh, progress a little bit. 
from your from your childhood and, and leaving South Africa and taking you into the UK. Yeah. At what point did you uh, realise or decide that you were going to be a writer? Were you a, were you a student, or did you try other careers before writing, or was it just your eternal passion? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd always written things down. Um, Partly because when I was at school in South Africa, um, uh, the teachers were always asking me to speak up. Speak up, speak up. That's why this cover, yeah, that's why I have (laughs) this cover. And um, I learned that, you know, being asked to speak up doesn't make your voice louder. And the kids at school used to actually come up to me in the playground. One day, the school bully, she was called Laverne, came up and she said, are you dumb? (laughs) And um, I thought, well, this wasn't really a yes or no answer. Um, And then one day a teacher said, why don't you write your thoughts down? And I, I did. And I discovered that my thoughts were quite loud. Hmm. And um, that was sort of the start of writing. Uh, There was nothing else I wanted to be, Hmm. ever. Hmm. Uh, I had a theatre training, though, not a literary training. Uh, I trained as a playwright, and and while I was a theatre student, (laughs) instead of writing plays, I was writing short stories. And those stories were my first collection published by Cape mm-hmm. uh, in my early 20s. Mm. Well, I was, that leads me into the, the question I was going to ask, is that you've, you've got, a, you have a range of techniques from plays to novels to short stories to poetry. Yeah. Uh, partially answers the question of, of how you started off writing plays. There may not have been 18, as it says in Wikipedia, no. but there were quite a few, no, I think. No. <laughs> Another one says I've written 14 novels. I've written five novels. <laughs> this is my fifth novel. <laughs> you have a ghostwriter out there somewhere who's building you, your career up. Um, but, Deborah, when you think of a subject or a topic or a set of characters, what is it that makes you take out your playwriting toolbox or your novel writing toolbox? How do you decide? Is, is it you sometimes explore stories as a short story and develop it later into a novel? Have you ever done that? Or is it just you, you know in what form you want to express this, this story or, or explore mm. an idea? I think the form finds me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, the theatre is really brutally direct. So uh, uh, it's an amazing form to write for. They're the audience, and there are these people, and there are these images. Um, and um, it's when uh, prose just won't do it. Prose can be quite, even even in a fairly short book like Swimming Home, Mm. prose can be very uh, intimate but epic as well and the kind of theatre that I'm interested in I suppose is more um, uh, although Chekhov is one of my favourite playwrights as is Beckett um, I think I'm much more interested in European theatre like Cantor which is very imagistic and um, uh, not at all naturalistic, actually. Whereas mm-hmm. prose, that's to do something else. Right. Um, and poetry, poetry you can cut quite close to. Uh, hu- it's a, it's just such a, I had to stop myself there because it sounds so terribly pretentious. Just sort of quite close to human life. Um, and tell it how it is. Uh, you know, I think everybody should write poetry every day. It doesn't have to be any good. Uh, I think we'd all feel much better if we wrote, <laughs> you know, just for ten minutes, 
write poetry every day. And Allen Ginsberg uh, said something amazing about poetry. He said, it's not about expressing the party line. It's about that time of night when we lie alone thinking what we really think, mm. the thoughts we really think. That's mm. what poetry is, mm. making the private world public. Mm. Great. Mm. I think, yeah. Um, yeah, I just read, in, partly in preparing to, for this and exploring the difference between short stories and novels and somebody, there was one definition, what's the, differ what's the difference between a short story and a novel? And the answer is a few hundred pages. <laughs> so that's one answer to, to the question. Yeah, George Orwell said that writing a novel is like a long bout of a terrible illness. <laughs> and I think a, a, a short story is more like a scratch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, the, I'm not sure if it's available here, but I, I wasn't able to get all of your books, but there's a book, Billion Girl, which was published some time ago. Yes, 1996. 1996. I got it through mm. Amazon because I couldn't easily get it here in yeah. time, but I'm not sure if it is here. But I, I highly recommend it if, if um, you're looking for other works of, of Deborah's. Has, has anybody here read it, Billion Girl, come across it? No. Well, apart from Leslie. <laughs> um, but uh, you need to talk to the publishers about it because now that you're getting a reputation here. I love that book uh, for all sorts of reasons, but what I wanted to talk to you about is the main characters. Who are, uh, main characters are two, a brother and sister, Billy and Girl, uh, very edgy, quite damaged. Um, it's set in Britain. They have a very interesting relationship uh, there's a reference to, uh, just down the road, is a place called Freezer World. Um, and as somebody who has a total aversion to large shopping centres, I totally related to your por <laughs> nightmarish portrayal of this um, massive supermarket with all its consumerism. And um, I, I found myself thinking it's kind of a horror story at times, <laughs> although other people would feel quite at home in it. Um, but... In, uh, in Swimming Home as well, you have 14-year-old Nina. So the two characters, Billy and Girl, are young, maybe what, late teens, maybe around 20. 15 something. and 18. 15 and 18, right. Mm. I wasn't quite sure how, where to place yeah. them. Um, and then there's 14-year-old Nina, who is in a way a very, very central character. She didn't appear to me as being that at first, but on a rereading of the book, it's clear that she's very much the centre. And she in a way holds the memory of the events by showing up later without giving anything away. Um, how do you, as someone who's no longer that young, um, achieve that kind of insight into the minds and the, and the thoughts and the way that young people perceive it? Do you sort of take yourself back in time to when you were that age or is it just... Uh, something, your creative powers which come to bear on that. I'm just interested in, yeah. in how you do that because as a documentary filmmaker we, we don't ever have the opportunity to really create new characters. It's just a way we observe hmm. real characters but that imaginative leap into somebody else's mind is something which fascinates me. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your insights hmm. into young people in particular. Thank you for your kind words about Billy and Girl. Uh, that has just been reprinted by, by Bloomsbury. Oh, great. Um, but um, I, I love talking to you about that in the, uh, just, just before we started, and uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you. Uh, okay, Nina, 14. Um, <clears throat> well, I agree with Freud when he said that Yes, yeah, so we all have childhoods. Uh, sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're sad, usually a, uh, a mix of both. And then we spend the rest of our lives getting over them. <laughs> Think that, do you agree? Yeah, that's something like that. Um, Nina, how do I get into the mind of Nina? Well, I guess I ask myself a question about Nina. And it's something like this when I'm writing. 
And Nina's not at all sure her parents love each other. And this is something that I leave open in the book. Mm. And I have to say, if Rod sometimes sounds like he's being a bit mysterious about swimming home, it's because I say to him, no spoilers. <laughs> Don't give the plot away. And he's honoring, the book. And he, and he's honoring that, because <laughs> I know that there are all sorts of other questions you'd like to ask. So Nina is always looking for signs uh, that her mum and dad love each other enough to make her feel safe. And, um, and there's some comedy in that too. Because if you're looking for signs, you're never going to find enough of them. And uh, she's also quite put out sometimes when she discovers them kissing. Because they're supposed to dislike each other. And, uh, you know, there's that sort of jostling for power in a, fam- in a, in a, in a family. For attention, rather. Mm. Um, but children think very deeply about life, mm. and um, all children, uh, whatever their education, whatever their class, children feel very, very deeply about life, and they, they're scared of things like death. And we all know that from our own children and from ourselves as children. You know, that time around seven or eight or nine when these children suddenly realize that people die and they have their first existential terrible moments. You know, you don't leave my bedroom at night Mm. or I want three toys tonight. Mm. And I'm interested in that, um, in the way... I, I think children are really very clever. All children. And, um... And so I try to honour that because I genuinely believe it to be true. It's my experience um, of children. They ask all the big questions. Mm. Why am I here? Why are we going to die? Why do you look at me like that? Why do you shout like that? Uh, why is that man so small? Why is that, you know, why is that woman got a funny face? Uh, there's a, it's very important not to kill curiosity mm. in children because when we lose our curiosity, we're depressed. So if a child has no curiosity, they're flattened mm. and they ask no questions and they don't annoy us. Mm. Um, then, you know, they're probably not feeling too perky mm. in themselves. And um, so you can feel I'm a bit on side there. Mm. And um, with Billy and Girl, I wanted to really make them witty, uh, as funny as as teenagers can be. Mm. And they always make me laugh on the bus. I have to say, if there's any saintly part of me, is that I'm never annoyed by how school kids scream on the bus. (laughs) I really am completely charmed by it. And there are all sorts of other things that, uh, in, you know, I'm grumpy about all sorts of other things, but I never mind that. And in Britain, the, uh, everybody hates the school kids. They scream and they bang the windows and they ring the bell and they give the driver a hard time. Uh, but I love listening to their conversations. And you're writing down what they say. I do, yeah. <laughs> I do listen to their conversations. They all overlap. Mm. And... Um, there was one um, school. There was one schoolboy. He was given a, a very hard time by a bus driver because he couldn't find his oyster card, which is a sort of free bus pass that you can slap down. And this driver was completely out of control. He was being so mean to the boy. So I stood up for him, and I loved the boy's response. He just said, "Thanks, yeah." And then he <laughs> <ran> upstairs. <laughs> So it's that thanks, yeah. Mm. There's so much in it. Mm. And there's a bit of that in Billy and Girl, mm. in that yeah, mm. you know. Mm. Um, so... I had a great, uh, a great energy, and um, I was trying to think why I uh, responded to it. I think um, sentences were very short and seemed um, not elaborated on, and maybe that gave it this kind of slightly jumpy... Thanks, yeah, 
kind of energy yeah. about it. So there's Bi- something in the technique as well <coughs> as the characters. Yes, so. because Billy is a working class British boy. He's just, he wants to be a world class psychoanalyst because he's read a book about pain and um, he practices on um, Raj, who runs the local corner shop. He says, Come tell me your problems. <laughs> it was a great pleasure to write. And um, in America, there was, a, there was a very good response to Swimming Home. Um, it won a Lannan Award. Um, I think in Britain, its, it's moment has yet to come. Because swimming Britain, home, you're talking about? No. You just b- said Billy, swimming home. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, Billy and girl. girl. Ah. Because uh, Britain is, is so class-bound mm. that if you have two kids who um, are really kind of quite witty and clever and they're not living with their parents, they're looking for their mum who's disappeared, there's a whole lot of naturalism, I think, that's required for the book. Who's, where's social services and all, all of this? And that doesn't have a place in that book. Mm. And America had no problem with it. So right. it's very much is a book that has, has its moment to come, I think. Mm. In, interesting. Um, yes, and maybe that's it's interesting what you said. It wasn't, it wasn't sort of rooted in realism. And so that's I had a little bit of trouble placing where and when it might have been, which didn't matter at all for my enjoyment of the book, but the fact that it wasn't quite so specific was, was, was strength of it, I, I, okay. apart from its, its, its background. Um, let's just talk for a moment about um, the, the publisher of Swimming Home, because I was very interested to read at, at the back of this. Um, and in one of the, one of the background uh, articles um, I read about it, it said, that the, I understand that the novel was rejected originally by yes. mainstream publishers. Yes. And the quote was, as being too literary to prosper in a tough economy, uh, which was, that's, we could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> but taken up by your publisher, and the publisher goes under the name of And Other Stories, which is a great name. Um, so firstly, it must be very satisfying to thumb your nose up at the people who... <laughs> Who rejected you and being nominated for the for the Booker Prize? But I was also int- intrigued that um, and other stories um, has a listing at the back of the book with what they call subscribers. And I'm not familiar with this. Uh, is this a kind of a new model in some way of publishing? And could you just tell yeah. us a little bit about yeah. that because that uh, would be interesting. Yeah. So and other stories. Um, which is headed up by the most extraordinary publisher called Stefan Tobler. And he's really like an old-fashioned publisher in a way because the subscription model is an 18th and 19th century model uh, in Britain. Oh, is it? Yeah, uh, where uh, readers subscribe. They, if, if they like the sound of the publishing houses books... Uh, and remember, I was part of their first list, so it wasn't a proven list. You know, our readers took a punt on it. Um, so, so readers uh, buy in advance the first four books, and if you get enough readers, that's enough money to to sort of start up. They right. also had a had a few grants. But um, when Swimming Home was turned down by a big handful of publishers, uh, at the same time, and other stories were starting. So sometimes life really does work out okay. And they'd heard what had happened to Swimming Home because I was an established writer. It was a shocking thing to, to have happened in every way. Uh, not just for myself, mm. but, it, you know, there was a sort of ripple of shock in, in my community. Mm. And there was And Other Stories starting their publishing house, the amazing Sophie Lewis, who became my editor and who'd moved to Rio. She actually helped, she edited my book in Rio. Um, Stefan uh, uh, speaks 
Portuguese and German and publishes lots of books in translation. And they were looking for one home author and they said, send me the manuscript. And then they phoned me up the next morning and said um, they would like to publish it. So it was a huge risk. Mm. And in the end, they delivered an aces for me. They took very good care of my book. And uh, you, you know what it's like. If you're going to take a big risk in, in, in your life, sometimes it's, you just have to meet the person you're going to, who's responsible for sort of bringing this home. Mm. And you make part of it is just a gut decision, isn't it? You just think, yes, I trust you. I like how you're talking about my book. You are going to be an amazing publisher. And so it turned out, um, Swimming Home was on fire almost as soon as it was pu published, long before the long listing. Mm -hmm. And one of the most amazing things in my life is at the age of 54, to have written a book, very nice for me, obviously, that it was shortlisted for the booker, great that it's been translated all over the world, but to also be able to contribute to bankrolling because mm. it sold over 100,000 copies. Mm. So the book that wasn't going to prosper in a tough economy, mm. um, <laughs> you know, sold very well. Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to sort of contribute to uh, the project of And Other Stories uh, just makes me happy every day. Mm. And then, just to clear up another confusion, mm. uh, you'll see that this is uh, co-published by Faber here and, and other stories here. And that's because when the shortlisting for the booker kicked in, um, they just couldn't distribute copies in the numbers uh, that were needed. And so Stefan Tobler, absolutely always doing the right thing for the author, championing the book, loving the writing. He said, Deborah, we're going to have to do a co-deal with a mainstream publisher who can distribute it. Because the worst thing that could happen to you mm. is for us not to be able to get enough copies out. Mm. And that's what he did. And so this is now co-published mm. with Faber. Mm. Yeah. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks for that. It's, it's very... It's, it's uh, the whole subscription thing. I didn't realize it had this history. I thought it was yeah. maybe something new uh, that, that was coming on. Almost like in film, film terms, um, there's a term called crowdfunding now. Yeah. Where if you have an idea for a, for a film documentary, you put it out on the net and you ask people to contribute to it. So it seems to me to have a, some, something of a parallel. People have faith that this thing which they haven't seen yet is going to work out. And they also help you to make it by coughing up the money beforehand yeah. mm. um, just in, a, in, in another sort of, I keep making these comparisons between I suppose my craft and your craft and I'm in film we would um, say if I'm making a documentary I have what's called a long assembly where you shoot you have hours of material you put it together in a long form and there you, you pare it down to a, a what we call a rough cut getting a little bit closer to the length that it's intended and then a fine cut, which is almost there, and then you, you lock it off, as I've just been doing the last couple of weeks with the film. Is that a process at all that you ever go through? Do you ever sort of write long and then think it's, it's going to come down? Yeah, Because all the time. with Swimming Home, I noticed that um, it was once, in one thing, was described as a, as a slender book, um, <laughs> which had a, a sort of a, a mixed... Um, a, a mixed emotion about it in a way that was that was it, it implying that it was sort of somewhat too slight to have been shortlisted for a Booker Prize or was that its strength that it ma managed to pack so much into a slender package and I just wondered uh, what your process was let's talk about this book in particular but mm. in general do you tend to yeah. write short and expand <clears throat> or write long no. and contract I'm a pretty brutal editor of my own work Sometimes I don't know whether that's a flaw or a blessing, but I don't like to be bored. And um, so I write long and then I edit, mm -hmm. um, always, yeah. Mm. And that was and, the case and, with Swimming Home? Uh, oh, yeah, mm. absolutely, yeah. Right. Mm. There's one friend of mine who um, 
He always has on the bottom of his email. He says it's not. It's the writing is easy. It's the rewriting which is difficult. So. Yeah, swimming home uh, is the book that I did most drafts for. Um, I think its narrative strategy was for it to be read on any level at all. You could read it as a sunny holiday that goes wrong, mm. and you could read it in many other ways. And because we have no spoilers tonight, uh, I, I won't go there. Um, uh, and I wanted it to be a page-turner because it was about big confronting themes that were very important to me. And I thought, well, the only way to do this is to sort of write it in a, in, in a very particular way. Uh, I have to tell you that there was one car alarm that went off in our street uh, quite regularly at about 4.30 a.m., and as I was writing through the night, sometimes I'd really look forward to that car alarm. <laughs> I'd sort of look at my watch and think, oh, good. It's going to go off in about 10 minutes. And, uh, yeah. So you, you write, as a writer, do you have a routine where you, you seem to write at night? Then not, you don't get up in the morning and do your four or five hours of writing and then have the rest of the day to yourself? I prefer you? to write early in the morning if I can. Mm. Um, uh, with children, I have to write, you know, routines, the routines and rituals of writing um, change. Mm. So if I had my way, I'd probably start at five and clock off at one. And if I lived in a hot country, I would just spend the rest of the afternoon swimming. <laughs> um, that would be a perfect life for me, mm. but um, mm. it, it wasn't like that for this one. Mm -hmm. um, one other question I wanted to ask you is, um, I had a memory, uh, my mother was an, was an artist and she used to sometimes see little scenes and she'd do a quick little sketch, I remember sitting at bus stops and she'd do a very quick little sketch of something, some little, some characters or a scene that she saw and then she'd go home and elaborate it. And yeah. um, I'm really in awe of the range of characters and situations that you have. To what extent do you use inspirations, like you mentioned kids on the bus or people that you see or you went, you went to Nice and you encountered somebody yeah. there which was a bit of a springboard to, to yeah. Kitty Finch in here. To what extent does that, do you use that inspiration from real life or there, is it mostly just the powers of your, or I would say just the powers of your creative imagination? Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? I mean, a bit of both. I think we, <clears throat> you know, all writers have to imagine what it's like to um, be someone else. Mm. Uh, but in Nice, I was, I, I write there quite a bit. Sounds quite grand, I know, but there's very cheap flights. Uh, an easy jet from London only takes an hour, and then suddenly you're out of the gloom of London, and the sky is blue, and the sea, uh, the ocean is a very strange, kind of turquoise, dead ocean, but lovely, lovely to swim in. And I go there for three days or four days, when I, if I can, and I write. And I was sitting in the old flower market one morning and there's a little tunnel that leads from the market to the beach and sitting in that tunnel on a box of plums, of, of rotting plums, uh, the farmer had thrown away, was a naked young woman <coughs> in her early twenties. She had long red hair and she looked very tranquil, but the thing was that there were some uh, homeless guys and junkies who hung out in that tunnel, and they were kind of circling her and kind of pinching her a bit. And I found myself just walking up to her, and I said to her um, in English, can I help you in any way? I really didn't know what I meant. You know, can I get you some clothes or <laughs> buy you a sandwich? I didn't know. And um, she just kind of looked at me, just 
smiling, the guys went away, um, and I left. And a novel was kind of born in that moment because I wondered what would have happened if I'd intervened. And I do make an elderly female character in Swimming Home intervene. She calls an ambulance. And the repercussions of her intervention mm. in, a, in many ways uh, is also what Swimming Home is about. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> OK. I'm nearly winding up and then I... So think about the questions that you'd like to ask, Deborah, because we're, we're almost... I'm almost about to hand over to you. Is that OK, Dollar? We're OK for time? Right. Um, I want to ask you a very direct question about why was there a 12-year-ish gap between writing Billy and Girl and Swimming Home? Yeah. Was it because of the, the, the two kids? Yeah. Or, yeah. Simple as that. Uh, when, when, <laughs> when, um, so the, 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 there was a, uh, almost a 15-year gap, actually, between my last novel, Billy and Girl, and Swimming Home. And so uh, the press, when uh, it was Booker... Uh, shortlisted what happened you know and um, and they were kind of chasing a story on this but the truth is that I had two children and in that time I was doing I was a research fellow at the Royal College of Art researching um, something that will be another book I was teaching, I was doing journalism, anything, to earn a buck mm. to support my children and, uh, and, and plays as well. Mm. So the kind of ruthless energy, mm. attention that I need, I, not all writers are like this, but uh, when I write a novel, I really, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it just cuts ruthlessly into my attention and time. Uh, and I couldn't do it with two mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. So when they were uh, older, uh, that's when I began s swimming home. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I read that you were recently invited to write a response to George Orwell's uh, 1946 essay called Why I Write. And I was just wondering, are you able to... Tell us anything about that. Yeah, Why that, do you write? That's this, this is, one. This is the book. That's re the response. That's, that's the response. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, that's very sweet of you because um, here we go with this it. one again. This, <laughs> this is it. It's a good segue to the new book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so, good so, teamwork here. So, so this is called Things I Don't Want to Know. And I reckon that I write about the things I don't want to know. That's what I end up writing about. Mm. And what I mean by that is um, I think the things... It's, it's a little bit like Ballard's uh, quote, it took me 20 years to forget and 20 years to remember. I think it's sort of the things that we kind of push away, mm. suppress. Um, no, I can't think about that now. Um, those are the things that I usually wind up writing about. Mm. Good. All right. Well, I got the answer to that question. <laughs> okay. um, now, there's a microphone, is there not, for anybody? This is being recorded, so we would like you to use the microphone for the questions, uh, just so that they go down on the record. But would anybody like to... I'll just throw the conversation open to anybody who'd like to respond to anything that Deborah said or to ask any tricky questions. I love both the books that I've read of yours, Deborah. Billy and Girl was just fantastic. And Swimming Home was great, but I'm, this is not a literary question. I noticed in Swimming Home that there were lots of animals. Bears, cats, dogs, slugs. Yeah. And others. But what was the significance of the rabbit? Who pops up in the first two pages yeah. and then somebody hacks rabbit paws up yeah. later in the book and lots of other references to rabbits and I thought perhaps you could explain it. Yeah. Kitty Finch feels quite very strongly about animals. 
So Mitchell, who's staying in the villa, the family friend, he hunts them. He collects guns and he buys antique vintage weapons in the market and he pops at rabbits and animals in the, um, in the orchard. And Kitty Finch says to him, why do you hunt, why do you hunt Mitchell? They have a discussion about this. Um, and, uh, and I feel the same, I feel very strongly against uh, all that. Uh, against certain kinds of industrial farming of animals and all of that. In fact, I said to my children, I want you to stop eating so much chicken. I said, you know, chickens are a living being, they're not cheese. Because in Britain, uh, sorry, this is a bit of a digression, but it's kind of connected to your question. Um, you know, they have chicken in three times a day and wraps and sandwiches and all of that. I'm not cooking chicken now, I told them, for three months. I said, what? <laughs> um, and the, the hilarious thing is, I was on book tour in, um, in Germany, and the house I was staying in, there was a book by Freud's son, Martin, and I was really tired, and I took it off the shelf, and I just opened it up. And what, what did I open it up on? Freud would not eat chicken. He said, he said to, to Martin Freud, who loved chicken, let the chickens live and lay eggs. Wow. <laughs> We're having some sort of seance, me and, me, me and Sigmund. And I wrote that back to my kids. And they just laughed at me, you know. They said, actually, Mom, while you're away, we're having a lot of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anyway. Anybody else? Yes, please. Hi. Um, I just started reading reading Swimming Home, and I'm interested in um, Kitty. She's got this um, background in, in plants, and she knows a huge amount about, you know, plants and nature. And I'm wondering, just as part of the writing process, do you bring, I don't know, your own curiosity or interest into your characters and things that you know about or would like to know about, and then use that as a vehicle to research yourself about these things? Yeah. Or do you... Um, That's a yeah. lovely question. Uh, yeah, plants, animals. Uh, the thing about Kitty Finch, though, is that she she's a botanist. But why did I make her a botanist? It's because flowers always belong to some sort of family. Mm -hmm. And we know about Josef's family. You will, you will learn more about Josef's family. So there's a whole sort of story there about family. And, um, and Kitty Finch wants to belong to, to, to a family. Um, and so once I knew that when I was researching and planning the book, um, I began to think about plants and how they always, always belong to some kind of family. Um, and that's why she's botanist. And it was a lovely opportunity to research plants and nectar, how nectar's made. You know, I discovered the bee actually spits it out. All sorts of fantastic mm -hmm. discoveries. Um, Thank you for that question. There's another one here, the gentleman. Um, um, you made a little intriguing comment before about Cantor, someone who was very influential here in the 70s. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that and what, what you got from his work or what you're reacting to in his work? Or? Yeah, I'm just wondering if I can find it in here. <laughs> I can refer you to um, Cantor was a Polish uh, theatre director. Um, he, he, um, his most famous his most famous piece is The Dead Class. And he has a whole number of actors come on stage and strapped on their backs are mannequins. And the mannequins represent their youthful dreams. Um, and so uh, he made this big imagistic 
uh, avant-garde but emotional theatre because usually the avant-garde's got a very stiff upper lip whenever it comes to emotion. And I think Cantor cut through that. And uh, that's why I uh, was so influenced by, by his, his work. Were you, were you interested in Vitkatsi's work? A lot of his work was yes. based on Vitkatsi, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, anybody else? Yes, gentleman at the back there. Mm-hmm. Got a bit of a thanks dollar. Thank you. This is a more generic question. Just wondering if you can share your view on um, the concept of novels being turned into motion pictures and whether you would entertain your book such as Swimming Home turning to a film someday. Yes, thank you you for your question. Um, When I was writing Swimming Home, in a way it was so cinematic in my mind that I, at times I began to worry about that because, you know, from the first line says a mountain road, midnight. And that's the car journey. In fact, it has been optioned mm. as a film. And I can't, um, I can't say anything about it until I'm told I can. <laughs> but it will be a, it will be a movie. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So who do you think should play Kitty Finch? <laughs> someone who's prepared to someone who's prepared to get a gear off in the first scene. Mm. Um, anybody else like to ask something of Deborah? Well, if not, I think we'll uh, we'll adjourn for drinks out there. And I'd just like to say thanks. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>